I'll start with a story, and it occurred to me uh, I was, as I was thinking about starting that I was going to start by saying, I want to tell you a story, the moral of which is and the point of which is. And then I realized that if I can't make the point in telling the story, <laughs> it's a really a ridiculous thing to tell the story. So, so here's the story. Um, if today's the 12th of January, nine days ago, I uh, flew home from Europe, and uh, I needed to fly from Barcelona to Paris, and then Paris to San Francisco. And uh, it was after they had introduced this increased security practices, so I had to come very, very early in Barcelona, and uh, I had only a piece of hand luggage, and get patted down and go through many security checks for, with, first when you arrive and you go through one line and then you go through the scanning machine and then you come to the gate and then you get on the plane and then you go to Paris. And then for the next flight, you, uh, I thought maybe we could do just an in the airport, but somehow you emerge into an insecure area so then you have to go back again with scanners and again with, again with the suitcase getting passed through not having any trouble, suitcase gets through, I get through, suitcase through, I get through. The very last, we're entering into the boarding lounge, and one final pat down and go through the suitcase. And there's a young security officer who's, there's all these tables, and every one of them's got a suitcase because every suitcase was getting inspected. I open my suitcase, and he's looking around in the suitcase and looking underneath the corners, and he picks up a bottle of salt. It says, Sel de Bayonne. It's a, uh, a certain kind of salt that I had discovered. Just regular table salt, but has a certain kind of flavoring. It comes from Bayonne. And I, thought, and I bought one, and I used it while I was there, and it was very tasty. And I thought, this is a great thing. I'll take it back for a half a dozen of my friends. It'll be presents for coming home. It's easy to carry in the suitcase. It's not that big. It's not that heavy. So I bought six or eight of those salts. <laughs> and I bought, uh, I bought some uh, Moroccan spice mix, also in a sealed bottle. And, uh, and some cinnamon clove. Anyway, all in bottles that were all sealed, never opened. It's not liquid, it's not contraband, it's salt, it's marked. <laughs> Anyway, here he goes through and he picks them out and he's taking out, what is this, madame? And I, you know, I speak well enough so I can explain this is salt. He's taking them, what's this, more salt? I said, listen, I, I bought them as gifts for people. It's salt, you can see it's salt. I'm a cook, they see all these spices, I'm a cook. And he goes through and he said, mm, he's looking very concerned. And he calls his supervisor who looks over. And the supervisor said, no, he's got to go. And so he's, I say, you know, really? And he said, um, you know, sorry, but you know, this is no good. I said, but clearly it was going. And I felt, I felt, you know, I'd, I'd specially shopped for this stuff. I brought it to Barcelona. I got it already through so many checkpoints at the final one. So, and I felt some antipathy arising in me. <laughs> I was annoyed, you know, the, the previous week. I'm, I'm thinking, my, my irate voice in my mind is thinking, 
this very man who made the problem on the week before. He bought a one-way ticket with a, in cash without a suitcase. He was, a, he was on a list. Here I am with my salt. <laughs> anyway, he took them all out, and he's going to give them away. And I, So I looked at him, and I said, uh, do you like your work? <laughs> and he looked up at me, and really with this, you know, a kind of a sweet face. He was a young man. He looked at me and he said, Madame, do you think I have any pleasure in taking things like this away? And he didn't finish the sentence, but it was clearly, do you think I have any pleasure of taking salt away from old women like you? Who... <laughs> so, and all of a sudden, the antipathy was completely gone. You know, I looked at him and I realized, you know, I just had the sense of he's a young guy doing his job. They're frenzied. They have to get a zillion people through those gates. They can't start to discuss who's what age and whether it's salt or dynamite or whatever. <laughs> if it's in a bottle and it doesn't look good, they take it away. That's all. So I, and I, the antipathy was all gone. I said to him, uh, maybe you can take this stuff home to your mother. Uh, <laughs> And he said, "No, I'm sorry. We, you know, we have to throw it all out." So I, I felt, and then I felt bad about that. But then I sat down. So the moral of that story, if you didn't <laughs> get it, is that, uh, which is really, if I had a name for this talk, it would be that a moment of warm connection erases uh, all aversion. But the truth is that a moment of warm connection erases all afflictive, afflictive emotions. And that's really what metta practice is about. And then I sat down in the boarding lounge and people are all getting through their, their procedure and sitting. And people are really relaxed and uh, helpful and smiling at each other. And uh, I realized, I was, I was really, I, I, I felt good because I felt that somehow I wasn't burdened by that. I had just let it go, and I felt very good about the fact that it was gone. My, my antipathy was gone. I thought, well, this is going to be a funny story, if nothing else. And, I, and I, looked about, I looked around me, and I thought, you know, it's a really pretty much of a miracle. I'm, I'm in France, and uh, 10 hours from now, I'll be in San Francisco. And this enormous flying great iron bird is going to take off full of about 300 people and fly them this 6,000 miles and feed them two meals. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to think that this flying bird's going to get there all right. And you get really, it's, like a, it's really like a flying city when you think 300 people, people die on airplanes, people get born on airplanes. I've been on airplanes where people died and I know about airplanes that people got born and all the while people around them are eating and sleeping and watching movies and dreaming and working on their laptops. and well, It's like a city. It's like a 300-person city in which all those things happen all the time. And I thought it's a miracle that this is happening. And it's a little more than a, a hundred years that the Wright brothers flew 90 feet and then this flying bird is taking off. And I realized that I was really very light of heart and I, I realized that two things had happened. There had been this warm connection and there had been a, a moment of radical amazement, really. Look what's really happening. 
what's happening is we have all this tension, but really, this whole thing is an amazing thing. So I think that's the two things that we have to do with the mind all the time that I have to do is work on keeping my mind steady and fix it if it starts to wobble. Do you like your job? That was fixing it. it. was Really, I didn't think how will I connect. It just happened. And keeping the mind really wide enough to stay really amazed and appreciative. I think that the Metta Sutta has all the instructions in it for how to do that. So I'd like for us to read it together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Stop, stop, stop. We're going to stop right there because I want to tell you, we're going to read the rest of it, but I want, we're going to read it in three parts. That first part is the instruction on morality. It's the instruction on sila, which is morality training. Sila is the Pali word for it. What I want to suggest to you is that the whole of this sutta are the instructions for sila, samadhi, mind training, and panya, wisdom. And I really think that the outline of the entire form of Buddhist practice is in this sutta. Now we'll read the mind training part. Wishing in gladness and in safety... May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, we're going to stop right now. Okay, now we'll go one more line. Freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. Okay, stop. That, I think, is the instruction for samadhi training, for absolutely training the mind, no matter what, it's inclined for the good, inclined to benevolence, no matter what happens, to turn it, first of all, back to resting in steadiness, in broad vision, and in goodwill, 
which will enable wisdom, which is the end of this, to manifest. Now we'll read the end of it. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Now we'll go back and do it over piece by piece. I love that. When I travel from place to place and teach, I really don't carry notes with me, and I figure out what I'm going to teach when I'm any place that I am. But I always carry the metta sutta with me on my person, because you never know when you want to take it out and read it and duplicate it and give it out to a group of people, because it's really the whole of the path right in it. The very end of it, this is said to be the sublime abiding, whether sitting or walking or standing or lying down. One should maintain, one should sustain this recollection. And I think, what's the recollection that was supposed to sustain that all beings, just like myself, are in the situation of wanting to live this life in peace, wanting to be happy. Whether or not I like them or I don't like them, we are all really in the same boat or the same airplane, if you want to think about it that way. We're all making the same journey. And just as I want to come to the end of my journey safely, so do all beings, omitting none. When I read that phrase, I get all excited about it. That's a serious word, words omitting none. Today you practiced with the uh, practice of the familiar stranger that in uh, traditional texts is called the neutral person. And uh, I remember teaching a while back, this is some years ago, and I was teaching the Wednesday morning class. And I was talking about the neutral person or the familiar stranger. And I said, you know, there just aren't so many neutral people in the world. You know, mostly, as soon as we look at somebody, we have a hit on them. They're either pleasing or not pleasing. Or somebody, people sit near you in the hall, and they either please you or they don't please. They breathe too loud or they don't breathe too loud. They chomp too loud when they eat or they eat too fast or too slow. The mind is always deciding, oh, no, not so good. Oh, great. What they wear, what they don't wear. They come on time, they don't come on time is mostly not neutral. We are really very fast on the draw to decide, have to have a view about people, which are so burdensome, really, when you think about it. Then you have to remember who's in what category. <laughs> not so many neutral people. And I thought I said, that we make decisions right away. And so I, I was saying that to the group and sort of carrying on about there really aren't so many neutral people. And my friend Joe Button, who has been a regular at that class for forever, said, you know, I think you're wrong, Sylvia. Joe at that time was a flight attendant for United Airlines. She was actually at some point in the whole of United Airlines, second in the whole worldwide United Airlines rotation of flight attendants. She had flown from when she was 18 to, or 20 to when she was 62 when she retired. So she said, you know, I don't think there, I, I think you're wrong. She said, when I stand up in the front of an airplane and I say, fasten your seatbelts, 
I mean it absolutely the same for everybody. Everybody has to get there safely. I don't have a sense of some more than others. And I thought about that. I think about it now when I'm on an airplane and I walk back to the back to go to the, the, the restroom or, and I look at all these people and I say, I really want them to get there well, all these people. First of all, I'm so moved when you fly on a long overnight flight. Everybody looks so uncomfortable. Everybody is draped in terrible positions of discomfort. <laughs> and I thought to myself, it's a very good simile for a life that we are all draped in positions of discomfort a lot of the time. And we really should get, we really hope for each other if we get it. We're all uncomfortably trying to do this journey and get there safely. And I am too wanting to get there safely. May we all get there safely. Thought about the fact that um, it was just a, I was I, I, think, I guess I was thinking about airplanes and getting there safely, and how much uh, more comfortable you feel. I feel when I instead of thinking, oh, what a long flight. If I look around and I think, look at all these people doing it with me, and look at that person with three children sleeping all over them, and look at this person who really looks in some way more uncomfortable than I. If I can make them dear to my heart, I feel more accompanied in my flight and less uncomfortable by the longevity of it. I was, and I remembered this afternoon when I was thinking about what I wanted to say, that um, after planes were grounded on September uh, 11th, 2001, and uh, the first flight that flew, uh, I think it flew from LaGuardia to Miami or somewhere along the west, east coast and uh, people were nervous getting onto a fl plane just after all that uproar and all that really terrible calamity and as, as soon as the plane took off and was flying safely the captain came on and said uh, this is your captain I'd like for everyone to reach into their pocket or their purse and take out their wallet and then take out the pictures of your family that you have in your wallet and show it to the people on the seats next to you. Share family pictures with the people on the seats on either side of you. And I thought that is so dear, you know, that if we look at other people and they show us family pictures, even if they say, you know, I, I didn't bring any family pictures or I don't have a family but I'd like to look at your family pictures, there's a way of connecting that each of us has a life and an interest in each other, and it just lowers the the fear level in the mind to know that I'm doing this journey accompanied by people just like me, who just like me want to get there safely. This is said to be the sublime abiding. I think feeling steady, feeling at ease in the world, accompanied, in warm connection, So I think it's morality, the, the sutta, and mind training, and wisdom training. And I think they all three of them maintain a steady mind, a steady attention, a wide range, a wider perspective when we're not frightened. 
our perspective is wide. When our perspective is wide, we're not frightened. So I thought about uh, how morality practice uh, allows the mind not to be frightened. In Buddhist practice, we say things like uh, the bliss of blamelessness. And think about when we do things that aren't correct, when we harm in some way, when we remember when we took the precepts, they all say, I won't abuse or exploit. I won't take what's not mine. I won't purposely harm. I'll keep my mind clear so I don't do any harming or exploiting. And then when we do accidentally even do that, we feel bad. There's a kind of built-in um, um, morality gauge, conscience, conscience gauge in, uh, in my experience, probably in yours too. And I've been sitting a little while, and my mind just begins to settle down, and I feel more comfortable. It does a uh, moral inventory by itself. That's not like I decide to do one. It says, um, you forgot to call back so-and-so. And so-and-so, when they were talking to you yesterday, they really wanted to talk a little longer, and you were getting annoyed, and you finished the conversation faster than you, than they wanted it to. And this and that that you said the other day, that was a little peremptory, and probably you hurt their feelings. Sometimes I'm, when, I, when I have too many things come up in my moral inventory, I say, that's enough. Wait till tomorrow. I'll come back. <laughs> Actually, I, I, in the beginning, I was quite startled. I was just sitting there so nicely, and all of a sudden, here comes this whole moral inventory. But I think it's because I was just sitting there so nicely and my mind was nice and quiet that the morality index, the uncomfortableness in my heart, because it has a memory of what I didn't do right, says, okay, now you have a chance to fix this. If I'm sitting on retreat, I can't make the phone call on the retreat. But actually, I always go home from a retreat with a little list of the stuff that's come up for me that I need to fix on the day I get home. And I feel better when I remember it and I put it on the list because then it's not hidden to me anymore. When it's hidden, it hurts. And when it's not hidden, I don't have to fix it that second. I, it's as good as fixed because I know I will. And I love it that I have a morality meter because then I intuit that other people do as well. And then I feel about us that people are really wonderful animals. That we all have, most of us have morality meters. And then I feel in the company of friends. It's a nice term, the bliss of blamelessness. Not guilty, not ashamed. Somehow there's a way in which when we're careful about other people and we take care of them because we stay alert to the presence of other people in the world. Because the morality is really in terms of relationship. When I stay awake to it, I'm able to soothe and console. And one of the things about living a life that's necessarily challenged, as everyone is, is that the possibility of making a warm connection and taking care of people is soothing. It really, it, it really is in some way, um, it doesn't take away suffering in life, but it has a redemptive effect 
on the suffering in life. So I thought of uh, uh, my experiences in New York. When I'm in New York City, which a couple of times a year I'm normally I'm in New York City, and I love to be back there. I grew up there, so I know it well. And I travel on the subway when I'm there, and uh, it's noisy, it's crowded, it's hard. It's amazing because I stand on the, tra on the, on the station <coughs> platform, train pulls in, especially in rush hour, and it looks like it's going to explode. You know, It's so full of people that you can't imagine that when the door opens, people won't explode out. And when the door opens, people get out, and there's people waiting to get in, and somehow, magically, the people in sort of move back a little bit, and everybody who's there gets in. They get absorbed into that impossibleness, <laughs> and the door closes. And then you stand in there like this. <laughs> and I look around, and on the subway, so, so the subway in New York is great because it's got really all ages and sizes and shapes and ethnicities. It's like the microcosm of the whole world is in a New York subway car. And we're all standing there together. And I look around, and I think to myself, by the grace of the morality of all of these people, I am held safely in this uncomfortable position until I get there. All these people, by keeping holding themselves together, more or less taking care of themselves, are really taking care of all of us. If one person made a fuss in any way. It would be really difficult in there. I look around and I think we're all safely going home because everybody's taking care of everybody else. I think that on the freeway here, sometimes I get on the freeway and it's really crowded and so many cars and particularly I, it's, it's so uh, odd to me because it's quite possible for me to think what are all these people doing? One person alone in a car. Look at this carbon footprint and it's so crowded and the freeway is jammed and I myself am alone in a car at that point <laughs> you know sometimes you have to go someplace alone in a car you know and the freeway is full of people and I catch that and then I think to myself you know I am getting to where I'm going safely because all these people are not crashing into me and my I'm really indebted to all these people for taking care of me in this moment because if any of them didn't something terrible could happen to me so and then I end up being able to say may you all get to where you're going safely may you be peaceful may you be happy may you drive skillfully may you arrive safely at your destination I think morality practice is taking care of each other and it manifests in a, in a, in a connection that keeps me warm and not afflicted in difficult situations. I feel really that people are keeping me company and not making problems for me. You know, if I think about somebody else when I'm in a difficult situation, like think about the other people on the freeway, the other people on the plane, the other people on the subway, it's as if my attention has been taken out of myself and my story and put onto other people. But it has a, it's very redemptive. I'm like freed from the limited view of myself and my own story, which after all is limited and somewhat boring. It's much nicer to be connected to all those other people. They've relieved me of the pain of self-preoccupation. I can think about them. That's always true. 
to talk a little bit about samadhi practice, the second part of the metta sutta. I think the key phrase in the sutta, a key phrase, there are words that I love and phrases that I love, but it says wishing in gladness and in safety. And I think the clue is in order for those wishes, no matter what, for the well-being of others to manifest, one's own mind has to feel glad and safe. It has to feel at ease. And it's it's a kind of a, a, a beginning without a beginning. Somehow we have to come to a place of ease in the mind by stilling it, by holding it steady, by making it steady. This is what samadhi practices, concentration practices. This is what we're doing here. We're not only inclining the mind in terms of the particular phrases that we're saying, but over and over and over again, taking the attention away from the myriad things that it could get seduced into paying attention to and putting it just on the intention for the good, the intention for the good, the intention for the good, the intention to appreciate, to thank, and for the good. That doing and redoing and reorienting builds concentration. The presence of concentration is the antidote for all of the afflictive emotions that come up in the mind. So I just want to remind you, because we've mentioned them through, through these days together, the, the traditional uh, ways in which afflictive emotions are, are, are named in uh, Dharma practice as lust, I need something, aversion, I need to get rid of something, torpor, I can't really pay attention to this, I'm too tired, I can't really figure it out, I'm too confused. Restlessness, I'm too anxious, too worried, I'm fretting. And doubt, I'm overwhelmed by doubt, which makes the mind wobble and be confused. All of those five energies cause confusion in the mind. They are confusion in the mind. Actually, there are five flavors of confusion in the mind. And what concentration does, just a concentrated mind, is it provides the antidote to those five confusions. And uh, in Buddhist psychology, and I think you'll find this in your own practice as you go along through these days, that the concentrated mind has certain attributes in it. As the mind becomes concentrated, it becomes more calm. Probably you noticed, maybe not all the time, but I, I always notice on retreat that um, a change happens in me. I can see it in subtle th- ways that the first day of the retreat, someone bangs a door, <laughs> I tend to jump. Or if someone drops three forks on, on, the, on, on the floor in the dining room, you startle, I startle. After a few days, the startle reflex gets a little muted. I'm calmer. Something happens. Even a thought comes up in my mind. The mind is not so jumpy about it. Calm is the antidote to restlessness and fretting, anxiousness. As we practice and the mind becomes concentrated, there's often a somatic pleasure in the body. It's body and mind. But in the concentrated mind and body, there's sometimes people will say, 
I was sitting and I felt warm, or I felt tingling all over me, or my body relaxed, or my breathing seemed so profound and so easy, and I could just feel it in a cellular way coming in and out of me. Or I felt little frisson of uh, pleasure through my body as I was sitting. Pleasurable body states happen. Those pleasurable states, often they're called rapture states, but they just really mean altered, awakened, pleasant states of the body. They're the antidote to aversive, grumbly mind. Can't have a mind that's filled with pleasurable feelings that at the same time is grumbling. It can't do it. It pushes the grumble out of the mind. It's like driving your car in forward and reverse at the same time. It won't go that way. That the mind is filled with pleasurable feelings. It pushes out all the grumble. Think about that in your own practice. When we feel sated in our bodies and minds, the the things that we were irritable about go away. There's a kind of... uh, Steadiness in the concentrated mind. It's able to stay with something. People are beginning to say, as I say those phrases to myself, they continue automatically. And that even when I stop saying them, and I haven't noticed that I've stopped saying them, they pick up by themselves where I left off. That you get it in motion after a while, it just goes on by itself. That steadiness... uh, the, the, the ability of the mind to sustain itself in whatever it is that it's doing is one of those five qualities of concentration. And it's the antidote to doubt. When the mind is able to sustain itself, it's as if the mind could say, look, I'm doing it. I'm really doing it. It's really happening. In that moment that you discover that the words are saying themselves, don't you feel good? Say, oh, I don't have to be at the wheel all the time. It's happening by itself. It's very reassuring. And not even it's happening by itself. It's happening. It's happening. That's very um, confidence-building. There's a kind of uh, acuity of uh, uh, attention, uh, a keenness of attention that happens when the mind is concentrated. It's part of the, is one of the five qualities of concentration that really we can perceive very small things. It's like the perceptions are, are sharper. Remember the title of Aldous Huxley's book, Cleansing the, Do- the Doors of Perception. Is it that you, the sense of smell gets a little bit keener. I remember my first uh, retreat, which was 14 days long, I was discovering that I could smell the oatmeal um, further and further from the dining hall every day as I came. And I I thought that was remarkable. And the the leaves were a little greener and sharper edged. And I remember thinking to myself, this is really, you know, really interesting. But there's got to be something more in it than smelling the oatmeal far away because this is too hard to do if it's just about smelling oatmeal. <laughs> so, uh, uh, 
It's not just about smelling the oatmeal. But the senses get a little sharper and the perception gets a little keener, in which case we're able to really perceive things more sharply, and sleepiness goes away. It's really the antidote to sleepiness because you really are more alert to less dramatic things. The mind doesn't get dulled. The fifth of the um, characteristics of a concentrated mind is uh, called one-pointedness, being able to put the attention on something and have it not move from there. And uh, the way Buddhist psychologists have understood that in terms of the hindrances is that uh, greed or lust is a mind that's moving around. It's not satisfied with where it is. It's always scanning the horizon. What else could be good? What could be interesting? What else could I have? What else looks good? And that when the mind is one-pointed, you say, stay here, it stays here. It doesn't need to look for something else. I love that, that, that little um, rubric of these are the five um, characteristics of concentration and these are the five hindrances. And I don't have to think to myself, hmm, anger has ar arisen, what should I do? Or lust has arisen, what should I do? Or restlessness says, what's the antidote to, to restlessness? All I have to do is concentrate. All I have to do is take the next breath and the next breath, and the next breath, and say the next phrase, and the next phrase, and the next phrase, and put my foot down, and the other foot down. It's not that hard. You say, okay, what I need is a mind that's concentrated. I'll just do that. That's pretty straightforward. I remember um, we'll talk a little bit about um, it came to my mind about thinking of phrases may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy Mahagosananda died a few years ago he was the most senior monk in the Theravada lineage in Cambodia very, very active uh, in the peace movement around the world. Very, very great consolation in the time of the great difficulties in uh, Cambodia several decades ago. Did a lot of work in uh, refugee camps with people in very desperate straits and was an enormous consolation to many people because in that difficult, difficult situation, he was able to hold and radiate and engender in people a sense of the possibility of peace through his own practice. I met him, um, well, my friend Sheila met him first. She met him in April of 1995. She told me about him. She met him at a, uh, a, a special uh, memorial celebration in Auschwitz in April of uh, 1995, marking the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And religious leaders had come from around the world, and Mahagosananda was there. And symbolically, and I can't tell you this without getting all goose pimples, uh, symbolically on that day, not symbolically, actually on that day, 
they opened the gates of Auschwitz, and this whole community of delegates who were at a conference walked out through the gates, replicating the walking out 50 years before. And uh, Sheila told me about Mahagosananda. She'd met him there, and uh, what a still presence he had. And she said he didn't say much. He said, may all beings be peaceful, and may all beings be happy. And may all beings be peaceful, and may all beings be happy. And um, uh, it wasn't as if Mahagosananda didn't have language. He actually, he was tremendously uh, not only educated, but spoke a, a number of languages fluently. But I guess that was all there was to say. Later on, um, that year, that later on, that that in that same calendar year, three months later, in August, six months, four months later, however much August is after April, there was another there was another ceremony in um, Hiroshima, uh, and the members of that same delegation walked into the Peace Square in Hiroshima on that day. And he was there. I don't think he, I, he didn't walk the whole way. He was an old man. Some people presumably did the whole entire walk. People joined it. It was a walk from Auschwitz to Hiroshima. And people joined it and left it and joined it and left it and joined it and left it all the way along. He was at the beginning and he was at the end. May all beings be peaceful and happy. I met him at a, uh, uh, a conference of Buddhist teachers, Western Buddhist teachers, uh, uh, meeting with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I think in 1996. I had the great honor and privilege of going with 26 other Western teachers, some from Europe, some from South America, some from North America, Canada, the United States. And we all met in uh, Delhi and uh, went, up, went up on the train together to, and, and, uh, and everything else that you need to do to get to Dharamsala. And he was in that group of people as well. And the, 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 the piece that I wanted to tell you, he wasn't very um, prominent in that conference. He talked to people, he talked to me, he talked to people, but uh, he had a very quiet demeanor. And on the first night, we, we arrived in the middle of the night and uh, spent the day in Delhi and were going out on the night train. And in the early evening before the night train, everybody was joining in the lobby of uh, this very big hotel in, in Delhi. And um, most of the delegation went to eat supper and then we were going to leave for the train. And he's a, he's a Theravada monk, so he doesn't eat afternoon. And I didn't want to eat. So it was Mahagosananda and I were sitting in the lobby together. And he was sitting across from me on a, a kind of a, a sofa. And he was he's a little man, and he's got orange robes. And he was sitting with his legs tucked up under his robes. And he really looked like a little pumpkin. <laughs> and... Um, they can't eat dinner, but they can have tea. So I and there was a tea shop right next to the to the lobby. So I went up to him and I said, "Venerable, can I offer you tea?" 
And he said, yes, ma'am. And he got up, and we went into the tea shop, and I got tea, and we sat, and we had tea. And uh, I, 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 we had some little conversation. And I said, uh, <clears throat> I knew that he had done that, that peace walk the year before, and that my friend had been part of that delegation in Auschwitz. I, I knew that he was doing that kind of work. I said, uh, what are you doing now? And he said, well, uh, I'm working very hard on abolishing, getting a, a, a treaty passed to abolish landmines in the whole world, because there are many still in Cambodia, all that part of the world that have been left there and that people step on accidentally and are maimed. And since I'm working to get a worldwide treaty banning landmines. And I said, how can I help? And literally, he reached into the sleeve of his robe, and he took out a petition. And he said, I can give you this petition, and you can have people sign it when you get back to California. And I'm, you know, it makes me cry to tell you the story, because here he is, a very quiet monk, saying, may all peace people, beings be peaceful and happy. Doesn't look like, you know, his presence is not dynamic. He's quiet and small. And if you say to him, what can I do to help? He reaches into his sleeve, and he's got a petition that I can take back and have signed. I thought that was tremendous. So the last piece of Mahagosananda, because I, I got into telling you that, but I have something else to tell you, is he was here in 2001. There was a very big Buddhist teachers conference, all lineages here at Spirit Rock in 2001, and there were... 217 Buddhist teachers from all lineages and all kinds of costumes walking around for a week and we had panels and it was tremendously exciting and the Dalai Lama was here for several days and Mahagosananda was also here. Again, a very quiet presence. And at that point, it, it was clear that he had begun to lose his memory. He could still get around enough and and was uh, you know appropriate amongst people, but we knew that he was really starting to lose his memory, and so he didn't have a part in that conference at all. But at the very end of the conference, on the last day, everybody was here, and I was wondering about how are they going to end the conference, and my friend and colleague Jack Cornfield uh, was uh, finishing up the whole of that morning when we were about to leave, and he said, "Now we're about to leave." And he turned to Mahagosananda, who was sitting right over here, and he said, uh, Venerable, I'd like to ask you if you'd come up and uh, lead the group in Refuges and Precepts. And he got up, and he came to the front, and he did Refuges and Precepts in at least two languages. And I thought to myself, when, uh, if, when I get older, I start forgetting things, what I want to get left with after I've forgotten everything else are refuges and precepts. I'll feel good if they're in there in a way that they'll manifest as what stays left in my fundamental wiring. Maybe the Metta Sutta. So I want to say a few words about Panya, about wisdom. All of this is practice of making the mind peaceful so that we could 
see the world and address the world in gladness and in safety is so that we can do it in gladness and safety spontaneously because we have recognized how much of a challenge life is for everyone. Here's Nyanapanika again. I read him the first night. It's another part of that poem about love. Love embracing all beings, be they noble-minded or low-minded, good or evil. The noble and the good are embraced because love is flowing to them spontaneously. The low-minded and the evil-minded are included because they are those who are most in need of love. In many of them, the seed of goodness may have died merely because warmth was lacking for its growth, because it perished from cold in a loveless world. Imagine having the spaciousness of mind and heart that says, even these people, they, they perished, and in, in their, 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 their loving heart somehow perished. May I warm it with my blessing. Sometimes it's hard to look at life and say, this happened too. We tend to say, it shouldn't have happened. But, you know, I I think we should take out shouldn't from the whole vocabulary because it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't have happened. It did happen. So I think that what I'd like to say is this did happen. What can I do now? Everything happens to everyone. What can I do now? You know, I, I get to have a chance to say, but just, I, I'm glad when it comes into my mind sometime on retreat to say Gwen's remark. Gwen is a friend of Donald's, friend of mine. Gwen, years ago, said this remark in a class down on Wednesday morning when uh, I had, um, I'd been teaching so the whole long story, but in, in essence I'd been saying, this whole practice is about being able to do this life and be able to say, you know, this and this and this are happening to me, but I'm really all right. It's fine. And uh, I'd met somebody on the way in, and she had. I said, how are you? And she said, I'm fine. She said, well, really, I'm not fine. This is wrong. My husband's lost his job. This has happened. That's happened. But really, I'm fine. And I told that whole story, and I said, the whole thing is to be able to say, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and I'm fine. And Gwen said, no. She said, I never say I'm fine when people say, how are you, Gwen? She, always, she said, I always say, I couldn't be better because I couldn't. And that is such a huge piece of information. We couldn't, any of us, be better ever. If we could, we would. When I'm dreadful, when I'm grumpy and miserable, and I'm saying all the wrong things to my nearest and dearest, I couldn't be better. If I could, I would. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I don't willfully cause pain, make trouble for myself, and suffer. It's absolutely true of anybody. Nobody could be better. If they could, they would. If I can remember that about everybody who upsets me, that they are doing what they are at this moment because it's the karma of the the moment, they couldn't be better. But to do that, I'd have to really look at people and I'd have to really see them who they are. Otherwise, I'd be stuck in the view I had of them before. 
which fixes people in certain places. Maybe the most important line in this whole sutta is by not clinging to fixed views, by really being able to see in a new way. So in the in the elegance of the hedgehog, which all of us are now reading, <laughs> it's actually two voices in this book. There's a voice of uh, a 54-year-old woman who's a concierge in a building in Paris, and the voice of a 12-year-old who lives in that building in Paris. They both have kept diaries, and so it's a little bit of this one's diary and a little bit of that one's. So this is the diary of uh, the 12-year-old. So here is my profound thought for the day. This is the first time she's just met someone in, that's, that's been really open and, and uh, uniquely in her experience interested in her. So here is my profound thought for the day. This is the first time I've met someone who seeks out people and who sees beyond. That may seem trivial, but I think it is profound all the same. We never look beyond our assumptions, and what's worse, we have given up trying to meet others. We just meet ourselves. We don't recognize each other because other people have become our permanent mirrors. If we actually realize this, if we were to become aware of the fact that we only ever that we are only ever looking at ourselves in the other person that we are alone in the wilderness we would go crazy when my mother offers macaroons from chez la durée to madame le brolier she is telling herself her own life story and just nibbling at her own flavor when papa drinks his coffee and re- reads his paper He is contemplating his own reflection in the mirror as if practicing the Kuei method or something. When Colombe talks about Marion's lectures, she's ranting about her own reflection. And when people walk by the concierge, all they see is a void because she's not from their world. As for me, I implore fate to give me the chance to see beyond myself and truly meet someone. I think that's what we're doing here. So let's sit a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.